Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone. I took a week off the podcast because I lost my voice. I never really thought about the fact that when you're a podcast host, if you lose your voice, you lose your ability to record episodes. I don't lose my voice often, but last weekend was huge for me. In fact, last week in general, it was like a perfect storm of all things amazing in my life, or at least two of my big ones. So in one week, my nonprofit running start and my amazing company, Skirt Sports, both had their biggest events of the year, culminating in a race on Sunday that would sort of seal the deal for lots of women. Um, This year, here's what happened. This year, we expanded Running Start to include 80 beginner women runners who would change their lives in ways big and small over 12 weeks while training for their first 5K. Um, At the same time, over 200 skirt ambassadors descended on Boulder from all over the country for our annual ambassador retreat, which was off the charts and included activities from Thursday to Sunday. So after the race on Sunday, where our running starters graduated and our skirt ambassadors had an amazing running experience, um... I came home and experienced the most dramatic crash I have had in years, not literally like a bike crash. I literally like just was wiped out. So I came home from all this hugging and cheering and celebrating women for days. And I literally was thinking, okay, all right, now I'm going to take over from Tim. He's been on wilder time, you know, for an entire week. So I'm going to take over my mom duties and give him a break. So I still kind of on a high, you know, it's like noon, I shower and then I get something to eat and then I sat down and that was, that was it. That's when it hit. It was like the minute I slowed myself down, everything slowed down. So I could literally feel the energy starting to drain from like every cell in my body with each bite of food I took until it finally hit my eyelids and I literally could not keep my eyes open. So I made my way over to the couch and shut my eyes while Wilder sat in front of a screen. That's how awesome I was doing of mom duties. And anyway, Tim comes home from a bike ride like an hour later and (laughs) he just took one look at me and he was like, I think you should just go lay down in bed. (laughs) I was like, no, I got this. But literally I couldn't move for hours. So I definitely failed on taking over mom duties right away. But my point is, I'm not sure, honestly, that I've ever felt that tired. And it wasn't physical or maybe like a little bit, but like I didn't do the race. It was really, truly, deeply emotional exhaustion. And it took me five days to regain my voice just about, I'm just about there, and about that long to fully feel recharged. So I was thinking about this episode and today's guest, Sherry Cormier, and that her message is really legit for what I just went through. So here's here's a little more on Sherry. Sherry is a psychologist who specializes in grief mentoring. She's the author of Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief. She wrote the book over the last decade, literally wrote it over 10 years after experiencing loss and and learning how to become whole again herself. So it's kind of crazy to think about this amazing experience I had as a loss experience, but in a sense it was because I went through a really very intense emotional week that was so high and then it was over. 
and I had to go back and re-enter my regular life. You know, and it's impossible to just forget everything that happened and go back to normal. So I guess maybe my meltdown, you know, my meltdown on the couch was sort of a grieving process because, you know, when you go from those super high energy situations and then they're over, it, you know, it, there's a little bit of a down. So I remember always feeling this way after every big race I did. It was like I was exhausted, but also emotional. And I had to process that before I could re-enter. Anyway, that's my segue here, everybody. That's it. So Sherry, who you'll hear from in a second, she is a true gift to this world world. She's a, she's come to this place in life where she can truly help others through a mix of her own life experiences and through honing her specialties. As she says, this is a quote from today's episode. When we pull our brains back from tomorrow and our hearts back from yesterday, we find the sweetness. I love that. It's like, get in it, get in the moment. All right, before we get in the moment, before we start, I want to share a little love and sweetness from Skirt Sports. So as you know, I just wrapped up this amazing week in Boulder. If you love our brand and mission, which is to celebrate women and help them find happiness in their bodies, consider becoming an ambassador. You know, we have various levels depending on how much you want to be involved You can find out more on our website under the Inside Skirt tab. Um, I'll include a link in the show notes too. And no matter what, you can always get a Run This World podcast discount. Just use the code RUN20 for 20% off. Uh, We just launched our new statement tees and tanks. My fave is the Strong Frickin' Women tank. Wilder thinks it's pretty risque. She's not quite sure if I should be wearing it, but I do. All right, ready to hear from the coolest, best energy grief counselor ever? I am. Let's bring Sherry Cormier on the show. Um, (laughs) What our listeners don't know is that we have been trying to connect through Skype uh, for about 15 minutes, and (laughs) we think we nailed it. We do. We do, because the number one way to make things better is just keep restarting it. (laughs) Yes, just like your day. You know, if you have a bad start to your day, you just reboot, recalibrate, restart, and bam, you have a happy day. I actually think this is like a really good place to start our conversation um, because this is like on a bigger picture, rebooting, restarting could really apply to today's theme. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely does. Well, let's... let's, uh, how about you share with everyone the kind of work that you do? What is your specialty? Okay, Nicole, I'm a psychologist. My specialty within that, well, I sort of have two areas. One is health and wellness and well-being, and the other is grief, loss, and bereavement. And I'm also a certified bereavement trauma specialist, and I do a lot of work with people who are going through some kind of loss event. And it might be, you know, usually when we think about that, we think about losing a family member or a a dear friend or a a partner. Um, We had awful news coming out of Sri Lanka this morning. Several hundred people died. I mean, that's a huge loss for so many people in that country. Um, Even last week, I think watching the news and seeing the the pictures of the flames at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. I think we felt collective grief. So I think there's loss around people. I think there's also loss just, I think loss is what happens in life because nothing is permanent. So in a sense, anytime we have an ending to something that feels unfam- to something that feels familiar, and we sort of move into new territory, you know, endings are really transitions and there's loss with that. And there can often be grief and and sorrow and sadness around that simply because, you know, we're, we're moving into some place that's not 
well known for us and we don't really know how this new chapter in our life is going to turn out. So, you know, sometimes saying goodbye to a job or a relationship or having a career change, um, you know, those, those kinds of events can evoke grief and sorrow and sadness uh, just as much as losing a person that's beloved or losing a beloved pet, which is very traumatic. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I think like part of what I was thinking about when we were, I don't know, when I was prepping to have a conversation with you was this is a tough and heavy topic. Like this is the deep, dark places that people go in life when, when the Mm. things happen that are bad, uncomfortable, like Mm. sad. And, um, yet everything I read about you was so positive and uplifting yet never played down the fact that the sadness has to still happen and be a part of it. So when you say something like, you know, nothing's permanent, right? So it makes me think, okay, we as human beings are constantly setting ourselves up for loss by simply doing anything, by including anyone in our lives, by getting a pet. I mean, your chances are you're going to outlive a pet. You know that going in. So how do we not walk the world like constantly waiting for the loss and the sorrow to happen? Well, that's such a super question because it's almost like, you know, how do we live not waiting for the other shoe to drop? And, And actually, unfortunately, I know a lot of people who do live their life waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it's really not a very pleasant way to live your life. So I saw this little quote that that I just thought of in listening to your question about how do we navigate knowing that, you know, loss is inevitable. The quote says, when we pull our brains back from tomorrow, and we pull our hearts back from yesterday, we find sweetness in today. So pulling our brains back from tomorrow, which is the future, pulling our hearts back from yesterday, which is the past, that's how we find the sweetness in today. And you know, you know, if we really wanna get concrete or even existential about it, Today is really all we have. I mean, this breath, this moment, this podcast, because nothing in life is really guaranteed. You're right. We get a pet and we don't know how long the pet will live. We we have a child. We don't know, you know, what will happen to our child. We don't even know how long we will live, although I think we all believe, you know, we'll live to be 90 or 100, but many Many people don't live that long. And, you know, so many of us, we lose a house to a wildfire. We, we get laid off from a, a job we love. There are so many things out of our control that happen to us. And so I think recognizing that control is an illusion and not trying to control things, simply trying to live in the present is sort of the antidote for how we don't go through life waiting for the other shoe to drop. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, Sherry has come to this place in life in this field of work and and wrote an incredible book called Sweet Sorrow over a decade, right? Through your yes. own personal experiences as well. So how did you... I guess maybe my question would be, what are your personal loss experiences and how did they shape your philosophy, like what you've just been talking about? Well, that's that's another, you are such a superb host (laughs) because you are just asking these beautiful targeted questions and it's making it so easy for me. Thank you, Nicole, so much. Well... I, about a decade ago, I will say, because I know you love love to focus, and I love to focus on happiness and 
positivity. And about a decade ago, I will say I was probably living what I would call a fairy tale life at that moment in time. Not to say that I hadn't been through some hardships, I'd had a divorce and a couple of job hiccups, but you know, I was married, a second marriage, married to the love of my life, my soulmate. Um, I had just scaled my work back a little bit more, so I finally had some leisure time to, you know, exercise more and take care of myself and practice yoga and see my friends and all of those wonderful things that really make our life worth living. And we had built a new house. Um, our collective daughters, we had four daughters between us, were sort of all out of the nest. And we were really looking forward to sort of just, you know, kicking back a little bit. And my very healthy husband really rather suddenly developed, I mean, over the course of maybe a week or two, developed some alarming symptoms. And he was diagnosed with stage 4B, which is the worst thing, cancer. Um, he passed or transitioned six months after the date of diagnosis, Nicole. And he died three months after the death of my father. Now, my father's death was not necessarily unexpected. My husband's was unexpected. But my father was older and he'd been struggling with some health issues, but but it was sort of like bam, bam, you know, I gun to my head. I lost the two most important men in my life within three months, and I was really, even though, you know, I am a psychologist, I was really quite unprepared for the journey that I've been on. I think I'm prepared now, but at the time. A decade ago, I was really struggling. I'll be really honest. I had some dark nights of the soul, especially during those first couple of years. I lost my mother several years after they died. And then when my after my husband passed, I had rescued a golden retriever. And then she got a brain tumor, so she passed a couple of years ago. And then more recently, my only sibling and sister um, died too. So, you know, I've had, I've, I've had a lot of losses in the last decade. And the, the good side of this, the upside of this, though, is that I, I really feel inspired and called to be working with people who are struggling with loss, probably because it was hard for me at first. And I felt like I really have learned a lot. And so I went to reach out to people. I, I facilitate a, a bereavement support group where I live. I wrote Sweet Sorrow because I really wanted to reach out to people and say, not only is this my journey, but these are ways that we can honor loss because it's not like we can get rid of it, honor loss, honor our grief, and yet at the same time, grow. Because when we have a loss, you know, we are really saying goodbye to someone or something. Not that they're not, not that we don't, not that we're getting rid of them. I mean, I have a picture of my late husband just in front of me uh, as we're talking. You know, he's always in my heart. But, you know, we're saying goodbye to a certain way that we lived our life. You know, I was partnered. I'm not partnered now. I live alone. I've been single now for 10 years. And that, by the way, is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but, you know, we're saying goodbye to a particular way that we've been living our life. And we're also saying goodbye to a part of ourselves. Because when we lose something or someone whether it's a person or a job or part of our career or, you know, our house or anything, our, our values, we, we lose something about our identity. So we're saying goodbye to something. We're also saying hello to a new chapter in our life, which is sort of unknown, which is where the scary part comes, because I think what evokes the most anxiety for people 
in this whole growth process is uncertainty. It's like learning to live with uncertainty. That's very challenging. Once we kind of get the hang of moving into the new chapter, like, you know, I'm like really great and happy and positive now, but boy, those first couple years were a struggle because everything was so unfamiliar and so uncertain. And, you know, one of the things we know about grief is it tends to sort of undermine our confidence in ourselves, And so, you know, there's that whole sort of loss of confidence piece. We don't know exactly what our life is going to evolve into. You know, be, transitions, I think, are very difficult for most people. And loss always involves a transition. But the good news, the positive message from this, Nicole, and to all your listeners is that with any loss, there's also gains. Losses also bring gains. One of the things that we do in that we do with bereavement survivors or grief survivors is not initially, because initially, you know, you really do need to tell your story, process the sadness, allow the feelings to be. But eventually we start talking about, okay, these are the losses, what are the gains? What are the gifts? And, you know, in any transition, I, I know of someone that lost his dream job and he was very sad and very sorrowful. You know what happened, though? You know, he had to wait, but eventually he got a much better job offer in a great geographical location with much of it was much more lucrative and he's happier than he's ever been. So. I think some of it is learning just to trust the process. And one of the things that we know that happens to people after transitions, and particularly loss transitions, is that we go through this process called post-traumatic growth. Because loss can be kind of a traumatic event. I mean, for me, Losing my dad and my husband, my soulmate, in three months was very traumatic. And so we go through this process. It's not initial. You know, I don't want your listeners to get the idea this is something that happens in the initial phases of grief. But later on, as we have sort of processed our feelings around the loss and the sadness with the loss and the sorrow, we we move through this process called post-traumatic grief, where we really have a change in the way we see ourselves, a change in the way we view the world. Uh, we have sort of a, uh, we sort of rediscover our life's purpose. We may have shifted some values. And we really, for many of us, it doesn't happen to everyone, but for many of us, we go through this tremendous period of growth. And I think one of the things that we really have to keep in mind with loss is that really loss, as, as sorrowful as it can be in the beginning, as problematic as it can be, as troublesome as it can be, is an opportunity in us for great growth and great expansion. Wow. Okay, this is... Amazing, really good stuff. I want to talk more about post-traumatic growth, but at first I want to go back and ask you, ask kind of a basic question. Mm -hmm. So you're a psychologist. You were when you lost your husband and all the, yes. you know, people losses began. Did you get counseling at that time? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> well, well I, I guess, okay, I let me. I sort of did and I sort of didn't, and okay. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. Um, and there, and it's a complicated answer about that. So most, I was a psychologist. And so most of my friends then, because I lived in a different place, I lived in a very small college town then, which I don't now, I moved geographically seven years ago, but I lived in a small college town. Most of my friends were therapists. So I had a lot of sort of informal <laughs> I can just see this. Right? Yeah. For, and maybe they were free professional help. It was free. Yes. They didn't charge me, which was even better. 
But I will tell you this. I went to see, uh, I went to actually see someone that was not in my, it was hard because I was known in the community by so many people and I had clients. Remember, I was at this time teaching and also I had an active private practice. I went to see someone who was not in my sort of social or work network for a few sessions. And one of the things that I talked with her about was medication. And, you know, sometimes, and I say that carefully and judiciously because medication is really great if you're depressed, but sadness and depression are two different things. So there's not a lot of data to suggest that just because you're grief stricken, you need medication, but it was something I wanted to explore. I wanted to get her take on it and her input about it. And the reason this is a complicated answer is that to be truthful, many of us, about 90% of us actually get through a loss or a grief or transition without professional counseling. But about 10% of us never resolve the grief. We never find the sweetness in the sorrow. We stay stuck in sorrow. And after a period of several years, we are still stuck in the sorrow. And we have this intense longing for the, the person. It's usually a person we've lost in this situation. And we develop what we call prolonged or complicated grief. About one in 10 people, Nicole, develop this. That requires professional help. And that requires a particular kind of professional help. And if you're a listener and you think this might be applying to you, I would urge you, probably the first thing I would urge you to do is um, Google the Center for Complicated Grief with Dr. Kathleen Shear, S-H-E-A-R, at Columbia University in New York City. And there's many things for you on her website that have to do with what CG or complicated grief is and whether you might be experiencing it or not. And certain providers who are trained in the protocol, they've developed a great 16-session treatment protocol for complicated grief. Now, the other part of the answer to your question about counseling, though, is, I think, support groups. Support groups, there's tons of grief or loss support groups. Most hospices offer a bereavement counseling and also grief or bereavement support groups. That's not really getting professional individual counseling, but I think it's it can be useful for many lost survivors to join a support group. I think a lot of it depends on the nature of the support group. Some, the, the thing that's great about it is we don't heal from grief in isolation. And grief is a very lonely experience. And so we really do need to have social connections to help us heal. So if you're someone who you know, you've lost somebody and you're living alone and you don't have any family around you, then for you, joining a grief or bereavement support group might be really important because you are then having sort of this automatic social network built in of people that you can meet, that you can talk with about your story. Because remember, you said this at the beginning, Nicole, We live in a country where we're not very comfortable talking about grief and loss. We like to keep things light and happy. I I mean, I love to talk about happy things. We're really a grief phobic country. We don't want to talk about it. And so even your friends and family, they, they might have a limited hearing span for how long they can tolerate listening to you. Because you may go on and on for a year or two. They may not be able to listen to you for a year or two. That's where getting grief counseling or going to a support group 
could be really helpful. Wow. Okay. This is really good information. Actually, a lot of this I didn't really know, or some of it, it just makes you go, well, yeah, that makes sense. Of course. But a lot of it, we don't know. A lot of it, I didn't know 10 years ago. We don't know it really until we probably need it. And that's fine. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. When we need it, we know it. Yeah. Maybe that's true of anything. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, and I've been, as we're talking, I'm also thinking in the back of my mind is this idea of like post-traumatic growth. And I was actually thinking about you and your career and thinking, well, I guess a parallel would be like, hey, I was a professional athlete. So naturally, wouldn't I be a really great coach? Right? Mm -hmm. So those things are assumed, but they definitely are not always the rule and often generally not the rule, depending on how intense you are as an athlete, Mm -hmm. the things you need to do that don't necessarily make you a good coach. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was thinking about like you as a psychologist before this phase in your life, when you were in the fairy tale, you know, Mm -hmm. versus you as a psychologist now and the things that, you went through and how did they sort of inform your growth as a, as a therapist or psychologist? And I mean, I guess my question is like, did they make you better? You know, I just got done reading a new book. Um, and uh, it, I'm just, uh, I think it's thinking of the name of it. Um, but she, it's written by a therapist, Lori Gottlieb and she says in the book, and I think this is so profound, actually, of her, that um, she believes in her work as a therapist that so much of what clients bring to therapists that an underpinning, let's just say it this way, an underpinning of so many issues that clients bring is loss. That loss is like sort of at the bottom, maybe, of these all these issues that clients bring various kinds of issues so i think in the terms of the question that you're asking i think one way it's impacted my work is it made me far more sensitive to that you know after i had these losses than before so i i don't think my clients changed i don't think the kinds of issues that they brought changed Uh, Although I did get, you know, after I had these losses, I did seem to get more clients who came in more explicitly leading with a loss. But I like her idea about loss as an underpinning for issues. I became much more sensitive to listening for loss, even when clients weren't explicitly talking about it, listening for loss and naming it. And, um... So I think I changed in that way. I I also think that one of the things, and this is a great thing, and I think this goes along with post-traumatic growth, that one of the things that loss can really do for us is it can make us much more compassionate and loving human beings. I mean, we, we, we can become bitter from loss. I've known people, you know, like I've known people that uh, have gone through really painful divorces. And and that's a tough kind of a loss. And they become, you know, kind of shut down and sort of bitter about the world around them and about uh, themselves and other people. So that's possible. At the same time, I've known more people that that really become more compassionate. We We have more self-compassion toward ourselves. We have way more compassion toward other people in the world. And so I think I became a much more compassionate person. I think that showed in my teaching. I think it showed in my therapy. I do a lot of, I'm not in private, I'm not teaching or doing private practice right now. I do this, uh, you know, bereavement support sort of grief mentoring. I do a lot of public speaking. I do a lot of writing. But in all of the 
interpersonal work that I do, whether it's talking with people in groups or in a public setting, I just feel like I'm more empathic, I'm more compassionate, um, I'm more, I'm much less judgmental. I'm, I really recognize that so many of us are struggling with things that we often don't talk about or don't want to talk about. Maybe we feel shame. You know, I, I had a podcast last week and we were talking about how so many women don't want to talk about the, having had a miscarriage or having had a baby and feeling like they've had postpartum depression because, you know, who should feel like that after having a baby? So I think I'm, I think it, loss can make us much more compassionate. And I think that that has happened to me. I this is uh, that's a really good point. I think you're right. There's a softening that happens, um, and a vulnerability, I guess, when you are able to kind of face the world again. It's very raw. Um, you know, one of the things like you mentioned, uh, less judge, le- having less judgment. I mean, so many of us like to think we have none. Like we don't judge people. But, you know, there probably are some things even in our subconscious. And I wanted to hit on a topic that I found when I was looking into some of your work. And you talk about the concept of sort of life after death or what happens after. Yes. And oh, I, I think about that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it, too. And I think a lot of people sometimes hear that kind of philosophy and sort of roll their eyes. But I think once you experience something super deep like this, it opens you up and some, and this concept does give people comfort and hope too. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your experiences with what happens after a transition. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. I, I, you can't see me, but I keep namasteing you with my (laughs) hands every time you ask these fabulous questions. Questions right I'm back at you. Away. And I can't believe the amount of research you've done and preparation. Kudos to you for this, too. <laughs> well, I have to say that uh, two weeks after my late husband Jay transitioned, and I really do say, I like to say transitioned rather than died now, because I, I really personally believe that death. Of, a, of someone we love is not a disappearance. It is a transition. Two weeks after he transitioned, it was Valentine's Day. And uh, Valentine's Day was a very special holiday for us because we were really in love. And so we both, uh, if we could, we took the day off from work and we just celebrated each other and our love all day. And we you know, we just did all kinds of special things. I'm not sure I can talk about all of them uh, in public, but you can <laughs> and cards and messages and music and very romantic. So two weeks after, you know, he transitioned was Valentine's Day and I was a wreck. I mean, I just couldn't imagine how I was going to get through Valentine's Day, you know, with without Jay. So Uh, That night, I had my first of many, what the literature, the grief literature calls, visitation dreams. And I've now found out, actually, Nicole, in research I've done, that about one out of two grief survivors, we do get visitation dreams. They're pretty common. That Maybe 50% of us will, and this is all over the world, in all cultures all over the world, will experience a visitation dream or more, maybe many, from someone they love that's transitioned. So I had my first one on Valentine's night and I woke up so joyful because Jay showed up. I really felt that he was with me. He said to me, "Um, I have this great new job offering for you. I'm going to take you we're going to, I'm going to take you to this great new job. And he was very excited. And I could tell that he was now in the role of being a mentor to me, a guide. And he said, this is going to be unlike anything you've ever done in your life. And you're going to love it. And I just was excited until (laughs) 
in the next breath, he said, and, and it's in Buffalo, New York. And, and I'm like, Buffalo, New York? You know, you know, I'm not a great winter person. I shrink in cold weather. I'm not a great snow person. I like warm weather and sunshine or cold weather and sunshine and not gray weather and snow. And uh, he said, yeah, he said, I get that. But uh, he said, trust me, this is going to be a good move. Well, and when I processed it the next day with the psychologist, we were shared a, a private practice office together. She pointed out, you know, that in Native American tradition, the buffalo itself, it, not the town, but the animal buffalo is a spirit animal that in Native American tradition means protection. And that, you know, we both sort of felt like it was my husband saying, look, you're, you're embarking on a new chapter. It's not anything you would have chosen, but it's going to work out okay. And that's really the theme of post-traumatic growth. If you talk with people who are trauma survivors and yet they, they move into growth, we'll all say to you, we wouldn't have chosen for this event to happen. Don't get us wrong. It's not like we wanted this to happen. But yet, now that it has happened, what can we learn from it? What is the lesson in it? And what is our new chapter, you know, going that, that we're going to live into? And then I kept having many more dreams. And one of the dreams I love sharing on podcasts is several years after Jay transitioned, um, he came in, woke me up, and I just looked at him and I said, honey, what's it like to die? And he said very simply, just wait. It's genius. Just wait. It's genius. Well, I mean, I have to say that dream and several others that I have, have that's really eradicated my fear of, of dying and of death or transitioning. And I really believe now that we really don't, it's only the physical body that has what we call a death. There is a spirit that survives a consciousness, if you will, and Deepak Chopra has written brilliantly about this. There's a consciousness that survives the death of the physical body. And that consciousness endures. And that's what I meant when I said, you know, to me, death is not a disappearance. It's a, it's a transition. Jay left his physical body, which served him no longer because it was very ill. You know, the body was ill and couldn't survive anymore with the cancer that riddled his body. But his consciousness still exists and his consciousness, you know, speaks to me all the time. And I'm getting fabulous messages from him and many messages about things that he's going through in his state of consciousness and also messages that I think are guidance for me. Uh, so I think that I have a whole new way of looking at the experience that we label as death. And I've read a lot of books in the last decade about people who have had NDEs or near-death experiences. And, you know, if you read these, I mean, not, not 100%, but many of these people who have maybe technically died, like on an operating table, but then they came back, will say, oh, my God, that was such a profound experience you know I saw light and I saw I felt love you know and there's all of these descriptors of just this this tremendous experience I think we fear it because it's a mystery but you know if you think about birth you know when we were inside our our, our mother's womb wasn't birth, wasn't birth a mystery to us because we wouldn't have known at that point either what it would be like to be born. And so when we're born, we move from one state of consciousness to another state of consciousness. 
I think death is the same thing. Wow, that is so deep and yet... um it all really does make sense. And until you're on one side of it, you just won't know. And that's, that's what's genius about what yes. your husband said. It's yes. genius. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, as we've been talking, I've been thinking like, so Sherry's job is to help people. And when we started, you said, I kind of have two areas. I, I work in health, wellness, well-being, and also, and in my mind, kind of in a, a the other side of the spectrum, which is sorrow, loss, bereavement. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about how those two areas could really end up complementing and informing each other instead of being sort of opposite. So maybe we can talk a little bit about how you help people grow from traumatic events or from loss Mm -hmm. and um, how you implement or use some of that health and wellness side of what you do. I I am blown away by your questions. Oh, this is is like such an astute question. I'm I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is fabulous. You know, I'm I'm vibrating from the the depth of your questions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna have to use this uh, podcast episode as like my all time testimonial then. (laughs) Really, I'll be happy. Whatever you need, Google reviews, whatever you've got them. Well, I think it's a great question because, in fact, I think they do connect with each other and I think they do inform each other. And the fact of the matter is that the kinds of things I was doing, let's say, 15 years ago in private practice, when I did a lot of work or even a lot of public speaking or a lot of writing around the concepts of wellness and well-being, there are the same kinds of things that we need to implement in order to heal from loss and in order to grow. And one of the first things that I talk with people about, and this is early, I, I sort of like to think about strategies that we recommend for people who are um, new grief survivors early in the bereavement process versus later in the bereavement So very early on, one of the things that we talk about, and this links both areas, is self-care. And it's, you know, self-care is such a foundational piece for health and well-being. It also turns out it's a foundational piece for healing from loss. And, you know, you sleep, for example. Um, If we do not sleep, we do not function. I mean, lack of sleep impacts our body at so many levels. And one of the one of the ways that impacts our body is appetite and what our appetite is and what we reach for in terms of food. And it, you know, hormonally we're our bodies are changed from lack of sleep. And so if we don't sleep, we find ourselves reaching for food, uh, kinds of food that are not nourishing, that in fact May end us. May end us. May end. May make us feel more depleted. So I'm thinking of like sugary snacks, like the Twinkie bars, uh, candy, uh, cake, pie, ice cream. You know, high sort of high sugar, high carb foods, which might give us a little immediate rush, but then we get that sinking feeling, and they don't sustain us. The other uh, self-care practice that is so vital that you know so much about, um, I'm sure you know more about it than I do, but it's so vital for well-being and particularly for healing from loss is movement or uh, exercise or activity that, you know, they we now say being sedentary is the new smoking. And there's so many things that help our body when we just get up and move. For one thing, exercise is a natural antidepressant. So, you know, I mentioned earlier about medication. Well, if we are grief stricken and we are going going to yoga or walking or running or going to the gym or dancing or any of those kinds of things, we probably won't need medication because 
that kind of regular movement activity is a natural antidepressant because we're releasing endorphins. And those endorphins just simply make us feel better. And we also find out that when we exercise regularly, we sleep better. And also regular exercise makes us, it seems to make us want to eat in a better way, eat foods that are, you know, really going to be more nourishing to us. So they're all connected, but self-care is really, really important. And another really important piece of a sort of the health and well-being part, but it's also very important for grief recovery, is some kind of spiritual practice like meditation. Um, some people believe, you know, Nicole, I think there's some evidence for this, that meditation may, may be the single most important way that we can increase resilience. And, you know, resilience is a really important uh, component in life today because we, you know, there's so much stress and there's so much burnout. And resilience really, we know if we practice it regularly, it can change our brain, it can enhance our immune system, it can really induce a much faster recovery from stressful life events. So those are two things that I would say right off the bat. And I'll, I'll tell you just personally, if I get up and feel like I'm having a sad day, the first thing I do is meditate. The second thing I do is move my body. And if I need to do one more thing after that, the third thing I do, and this would be the third thing I recommend both for health and wellness and also for, for grief recovery, is I connect. Social connection is so important for our well-being. You know, loneliness is an epidemic. In fact, millennials and Gen Xers are reporting record levels of loneliness. Loneliness is a public health e epidemic now. Uh, it, you know, it's, it impacts our, our wellness, impacts our immune system, impacts the way we feel about ourselves. So we really need social connection, not only for healing from loss, also just for being healthy people and happy people. And and you're talking about connecting in person, not going on Facebook and... I'm talking about connecting in person. Now, if for some reason you can't do that, that's the best way to do it. Because when we bond with another person, and let's say, you know, physically, like face-to-face, -face, touch, give them a hug, we get a hug, we release a hormone called oxytocin which is a hormone that really makes us feel good. I don't think we get that same release when we're in so connecting through social media. So face-to-face, person-to-person, we need some of that every day. Some of it, it doesn't have to be all day, but we need some human connection every day. I love this. This is why I started the podcast. It's not in person, but the idea is that you're out there moving when you're listening to it and you're feeling more connected. And even though it's, you know, hopefully you're running into people on the trail and waving, saying yes. hi, getting a little mini dose of oxytocin. But it is, it's, it's just all about continuing to move forward. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So how, you know, I think... I've experienced this and I'm sure other people have, but how do you go enjoy your life after times of loss and not feel guilty having fun, laughing, doing those things when you, part of you feels like maybe you should still be sad? Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> I want to, zero in on the word should. Ah, yes. <laughs> Thinks oh, you should one. still be sad. Mm -hmm. So the therapist, the therapist in me wants to highlight that word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those shoulds, you know, they're, uh, they're challenging words. Um, you know, language is, I've come to believe that language, the way we use language is so important too, because if we talk about our life, you know, oh, I'm so 
sad all the time and I feel nothing but guilt and I'm downtrodden and I have all these things I should be doing. You know, that's the way our life is going to be turning out. So should is really different than could or will or choose to. But but you raise a valid point. And I think there are a number of people who feel very guilty um, about this whole issue. And what I would say is I have never known really anybody who's transitioned from earth to another state of consciousness or whatever you want to call it, died, who wanted their loved ones left behind sad and sorrowful. Now, they know that it will happen, but if you just think back to that first visitation dream I described about going to Buffalo, two weeks after my husband transitioned, he's like, come on, let's go to Buffalo. I know you didn't want to go there, but I'm telling you this is going to turn out okay. He, Our loved ones want us to be happy. They don't want us to be sorrowful, even though, of course, we're going to be somewhat sorrowful. I just got done writing a piece, though, for Thrive Global on we need to balance sweetness and sorrow. And that's why I titled the book that way, because it's like like in life, there's a yin and there's a yang. You know, there's a sweetness and there's a sorrow. There's times to be grieving and there's times to be not grieving. So uh, in this article, I talk about how there are times in life when our grief gets triggered There also need to be times when our joy and happiness gets triggered. And we need to make sure when we're healing from loss that we balance grief and joy. And, you know, one of the ways that we do that, ironically, is as a loss survivor ourselves, we find ways to lift the spirits of other people. There's research that shows the single most important thing we can do to increase our well-being in life is to do something kind for someone else. And so in the midst of our sorrow, when we find a way to lift the spirits of someone else or do something kind for someone else, our spirits are also lifted. Wow, that is super important. That's a really great little nugget. We're going to get to a nugget here soon. Wow, good one. I'm just loving our flow today because I really want to talk about your book here. We need people to get on and and check it out for any time in their life when they may, may be experiencing loss. But it's called Sweet Sorrow, Finding Enduring Wholeness After Loss and Grief. So maybe talk a little bit more about how... It, uh, what I read, and maybe you can expand on this, is that you wrote it over a long period of time, not just like in the immediate aftermath of like losing your husband. Um, so how, how did the book kind of come to be and how can people get it? Okay, great questions, great questions. Well, I wrote it over a long period of time. You're accurate. And I did that intentionally. And here's the reason. So many books, the book is really kind of written in two parts. The first part is my own story of loss. And the second part is really a guidebook for loss survivors and how do you cope with loss. And I even have a chapter for people that aren't grieving on how can you help friends and family who are grieving, for example. But I waited intentionally because I believe that grief changes over time. I am in a much different place now, a decade later after losing my dad and my husband and then even successive losses. I'm in a much different place than I was nine years ago. If I had written this, if I had written Sweet Sorrow nine years ago, it would have been it. I don't even think I could have called it Sweet Sorrow. You know, I probably would have called it wading through a dark night of your soul because, you know, that's how you feel immediately afterwards. And so many of these books about our stories of loss 
are written in the immediate aftermath. And I worry uh, really kind of as a psychologist and a therapist and a, as a bereavement trauma specialist, I sort of worry that those books give new loss survivors a sort of a skewed view of loss and of grief. And I did not want to contribute to that body of literature. I wanted to contribute to the body of literature and write a guidebook that was like, okay, this is sort of what you might be experiencing in the beginning. And you might experience this certainly for a year, maybe two, maybe three years. Then as time ensues, here are some other things that you will probably notice will happen. So I really wanted to give readers that ev- that sort of longitudinal or evolutionary sense of, you know, how your life may evolve over time after you struggled with a loss, some kind of loss in your life, but any kind of loss, really. It could be a divorce, could be a job, might not be a person. But, thing, you know, your, your reaction to that loss, your response to it, the way you feel about it changes over time. And I really wanted to emphasize that. You can get Sweet Sorrow on online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I have a website you can check out, uh, www.sherry, S-H-E-R-R-Y, Cormier, C-O-R-M-I-E-R, author, A-U-T-H-O-R, dot com. And I've gotten great, I have to say, one of the most rewarding things, Nicole, for me about writing the book, I really wrote the book to help people, is notes, handwritten notes I've gotten from people saying, I bought your book and I read it and I was, you know, I just had had gone through this really tough experience and, you know, I found all of, all of these little nuggets in your book that have really helped me on days when I've really been struggling. That just that just means the world to me. Wow, Sherry, that is so cool. Okay, so I encourage everyone to pick up a copy because it can be helpful through our entire lives, and then you'll have it when you really need it, too. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> um, so we have had such an awesome conversation. We've been totally on the same page and flow here today. I love it, Sherry. I wish you lived locally so we could be doing this in person. I do too. And I, I said at the beginning, you know, Nicole, if I was living in Bol- where you're living, we would be, I think we'd be immediate friends. I'd be, I'd be at uh, your store hanging out with you all the time. <laughs> <laughs> be the best. I love it. Well, let's then wrap it up here and uh, let's let's do our final question, the one I ask every guest who comes on the show, which is if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Whoa, you're limiting me to one. <laughs> You've already had about 20. I, I guess that's true, right? Um Hmm. Well, I think at this point, I'm going to say, um, remember that what you focus on expands. Remember that what you focus on expands, that it grows. So if you focus on love, that expands. If you focus on worry, that expands. If you focus on peace, that expands. If you focus on judgment, that expands. So whatever we focus on expands. Wow, that's a great one. Well, I'm sure going to be focusing on uh, happiness after chatting with you today, Sherry. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for being the most wonderful, well-informed, articulate host. I can't tell you how grateful I am to you. And I'm so excited. I've been able to be on your podcast and connect with all your listeners and namaste to you, Nicole. Namaste. I'm back, everybody. So what'd you think? Um, I love Sherry's approach to life, love, loss, transition. 
I learned a new concept that makes so much sense to me as well. Post-traumatic growth. As you know, I came off a week from where many women shared their stories of hardship, their struggles, and they came out the other side stronger. That is post-traumatic growth. So as, as much as it may not be comforting in the moment, loss helps us grow. Just by the sheer fact that you get through it, you experience growth. I just love Sherry. Her final nugget is one of my favorites ever. Remember that what you focus on expands. Love, worry, peace, judgment, positivity, right? When you focus on something, it becomes bigger. So when you find yourself focusing on the dark side, remember that you're only giving it more power and find a way to shift it to the good side. Call me if you have to. I'll help you out. That's it from me today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.